Book 8, Chapter 1 of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marion Slauson. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Detcher became aware afresh that he disliked his hotel, and all the more promptly that he had had occasion of old to make the same discrimination. The establishment, choked at that season with the polyglot herd, cockneys of all climes, mainly German, mainly American, mainly English, it appeared as the corresponding sensitive nerve was touched, sounded loud and not sweet, sounded anything and everything but Italian, but Venetian. The Venetian was all a dialect he knew, yet it was pure Attic beside some of the dialects at the bustling inn. It made abroad, both for his pleasure and his pain, that he had had to feel at almost any point how he had been through everything before. He had been three or four times in Venice, during other visits, through this pleasant irritation of paddling away, away from the concert of false notes in the vulgarised hall, away from the amiable American families and overfed German porters. He had in each case made terms for a lodging more private and not more costly, and he recalled with tenderness his shabby but friendly asylums, the windows of which he should easily know again in passing on canal or through Campo. The shabbiest now failed of an appeal to him, but he found himself at the end of forty-eight hours forming views in respect to a small independent quartier far down the Grand Canal, which he had once occupied for a month with a sense of pomp and circumstance, and yet also with a growth of initiation into the homely of Venetian mysteries. The humour of those days came back to him for an hour, and what further befell in this interval, to be brief, was that, emerging on a traghetto in sight of the recognised house, he made out on the green shutters of his old, of his young windows, the strips of white pasted paper that figure in Venice as an invitation to tenants. This was in the course of his very first walk apart, a walk replete with impressions to which he responded with force. He had been almost without cessation since his arrival at Palazzo Leporelli, where, as happened, a turn of bad weather on the second day had kept the whole party continuously at home. The episode had passed for him like a series of hours in a museum, though without the fatigue of that, and it had also resembled something that he was still, with a stirred imagination, to find a name for. He might have been looking for the name while he gave himself up subsequently to the ramble. He saw that even after years he couldn't lose his way, crowned with his stare across the water at the little white papers. He was to dine at the palace in an hour or two, and he had lunched there at an early luncheon that morning. He had then been out with the three ladies, the three being Mrs. Lauder, Mrs. Stringham and Kate, and had kept afloat with them under a sufficient Venetian spell until Aunt Maud had directed him to leave them and return to Miss Teal. Of two circumstances connected with this disposition of his person, he was even now not unmindful, the first being that the Lady of Lancaster Gate had addressed him with high publicity, and as if expressing equally the sense of her companions who had not spoken, but who might have been taken, yet Susan Shepherd quite equally with Kate, were inscrutable parties to her plan. What he could as little contrive to forget was that he had, before the two others, as it struck him, that was to say, especially before Kate, done exactly as he was bidden, gathered himself up without a protest, and retraced his way to the palace. Present with him still was the question of whether he looked a fool for it, or of whether the awkwardness he felt as the gondola rocked with the business of his leaving it, they could but make, in submission, for a landing-place that was none of the best, 
had furnished his friends with such entertainment as was to cause them, behind his back, to exchange intelligent smiles. He had found Millie Teal twenty minutes later alone, and he had sat with her till the others returned to tea. The strange part of this was that it had been very easy, extraordinarily easy. He knew it was strange only when he was away from her, because when he was away from her he was in contact with particular things that made it so. At the time, in her presence, it was as simple as sitting with his sister might have been, and not, if the point were urged, very much more thrilling. He continued to see her as he had first seen her, that remained ineffaceably behind. Mrs. Lowder, Susan Shepherd, his own Kate, might, each in proportion, see her as a princess, as an angel, as a star, but for himself, luckily, she hadn't as yet complications to any point of discomfort. The princess, the angel, the star, were muffled over, ever so lightly and brightly, for the little American girl who had been kind to him in New York, and to whom certainly, though without making too much of it for either of them, he was perfectly willing to be kind in return. She appreciated his coming in on purpose, but there was nothing in that, from the moment she was always at home, that they couldn't easily keep up. The only note the least bit higher that had even yet sounded between them was this admission on her part that she found it best to remain within. She wouldn't let him call it keeping quiet, for she insisted that her palace, with all its romance and art and history, had set up round her a whirlwind of suggestion that never dropped for an hour. It wasn't, therefore, within such walls, confinement. It was the freedom of all the centuries, in respect to which Densher granted good-humouredly that they were then blown together, she and he, as much as she liked, through space. Kate had found on the present occasion a moment to say to him that he suggested a clever cousin calling on a cousin afflicted and bored for his pains, and though he denied on the spot the board, he could so far see it as an impression that he might make that he wondered if the same image wouldn't have occurred to Millie. As soon as Kate appeared again, the difference came up, the oddity, as he then instantly felt it, of his having sunk so deep. It was sinking because it was all doing what Kate had conceived for him. It wasn't in the least doing, and that had been his notion of his life, anything he himself had conceived. The difference, accordingly, renewed, sharp, sore, was the irritant under which he had quitted the palace and under which he was to make the best of the business of again dining there. He said to himself that he must make the best of everything, that was in his mind at the Tregethel, even while, with his preoccupation about changing quarters, he studied across the canal the look of his former abode. It had done for the past, would it do for the present? Would it play in any manner into the general necessity of which he was conscious? That necessity of making the best was the instinct, as he indeed himself knew, of a man somehow aware that if he let go at one place he should let go everywhere. If he took off his hand, the hand that at least helped to hold it together, the whole queer fabric that built him in would fall away in a minute and emit the light. It was really a matter of nerves. It was exactly because he was nervous that he could go straight. Yet if that condition should increase, he must surely go wild. He was walking in short on a high ridge, steep down on either side, where the proprieties, once he could face it all remaining there, reduced themselves to his keeping his head. It was Kate who had so perched him, and there came up for him at moments, as he found himself planting one foot exactly before another, a sensible sharpness of irony as to her management of him. It wasn't that she had put him in danger. To be in real danger with her would have had another quality. There glowed for him, in fact, a kind of rage at what he wasn't having, an exasperation, a resentment, begotten truly by the very impatience of desire, in respect to his postponed and relegated, his so extremely manipulated state.
It was beautifully done of her, but what was the real meaning of it unless that he was perpetually bent to her will? His idea from the first, from the very first of his knowing her, had been to be, as the French called it, one prince with her, mindful of the good humour and generosity, the contempt, in the matter of confidence, for small outlays and small savings that belonged to the man who wasn't generally afraid. There were things enough, goodness knew, for it was the moral of his plight that he couldn't afford, but what had had a charm for him, if not the notion of living handsomely, to make up for it in another way? I'm not at all events reading the romance of his existence in a cheap edition. All he had originally felt in her came back to him, was indeed actually as present as ever, how he had admired and envied what he called to himself a pure talent for life, as distinguished from his own, a poor weak thing of the occasion, amateurishly patched up, only it irritated him the more that this was exactly what was now, ever so characteristically, standing out in her. It was thanks to her pure talent for life, verily, that he was just where he was, and that he was above all just how he was. The proof of a decent reaction in him against so much passivity was, with no great richness, that he at least knew, knew that is, how he was, and how little he liked it as a thing accepted in mere helplessness. He was, for the moment, wistful, but above all described it. That was so large a part of the force as the autumn afternoon closed in, kept him, on his trigetto, positively throbbing with his question. His question connected itself, even while he stood, with his special smothered soreness, his sense almost of shame, and the soreness and the shame were less as he let himself, with the help of the conditions about him, regarded as serious. It was born, for that matter, partly of the conditions, those conditions that Kate had so almost insolently braved, had been willing, without a pang, to see him ridiculously, ridiculously so far as just complacently, exposed to how little it could be complacently he was to feel with the last thoroughness before he had moved from his point of vantage. His question, as we have called it, was the interesting question of whether he had really no will left. How could he know that was the point without putting the matter to the test? It had been right to be born prince, and the joy, something of the pride of having lived in spirit handsomely, was even now compatible with the impulse to look into their account. But he held his breath a little as it came home to him with supreme sharpness that, whereas he had done absolutely everything that Kate had wanted, she had done nothing whatever that he had. So it was in fine that his idea of the test by which he must try that possibility kept referring itself in the warm early dusk, the approach of the southern night, conditions these, such as we just spoke of, to the glimmer, more and more ghostly as the light failed, of the little white papers on his old green shutters. By the time he looked at his watch, he had been for a quarter of an hour at this post of observation and reflection. But by the time he walked away again, he had found his answer to the idea that had grown too importunate. Since the proof of his will was wanted, it was indeed very exactly in wait for him. It lurked there on the other side of the canal. A ferryman of the little pier had from time to time accosted him, but it was a part of the play of his nervousness to turn his back on that facility. He would go over, but he walked very quickly, round and round, crossing finally by the Rialto. The rooms, in the event, were unoccupied. The ancient Padrona was there with her smile all the radiance, but her recognition all the fable. The ancient rickety objects, too, refined in their shabbiness, amiable in their decay, as to which, on his side, demonstrations were tenderly voracious, so that before he took his way again, he had arranged to come in on the morrow. He was amusing about it that evening at dinner, in spite of an odd first impulse which at the palace quite melted away, to treat it merely as matter for his own satisfaction. 
This need, this propriety, he had taken for granted even up to the moment of suddenly perceiving in the course of talk that the incident would minister to innocent gaiety. Such was quite its effect with the aid of his picture, an evocation of the quaint, of the humblest rococo, of a Venetian interior in the true old note. He made the point for his hostess that her own high chambers, though they were a thousand grand things, weren't really this. Made it, in fact, with such success that she presently declared it his plain duty to invite her on some near day to tea. She had expressed as yet, he could feel it as felt among them all, no such clear wish to go anywhere, not even to make an effort for a parish feast or an autumn sunset, nor to descend her staircase for Titian or Gian Bellini. It was constantly Densher's view that, as between himself and Kate, things were understood without saying, so that he could catch in her, as she but too freely put in him, innumerable signs of it, the whole soft breath of consciousness meeting and promoting consciousness. This view was so far justified tonight as that Milly's offer to him of her company was to his sense taken up by Kate in spite of her doing nothing to show it. It fell in so perfectly with what she had desired and foretold, that she was, and this was what struck him, sufficiently gratified and blinded by it not to know, from the false quality of his response, from his tone and his very look, which for an instant instinctively sought her own, that he had answered inevitably, almost shamelessly, in a mere time-gaining sense. It gave him on the spot the failure of perception, almost the beginning of the advantage he had been planning for, that is, at least, if she too were not darkly dishonest. She might, he was not unaware, have made out from some deep part of her the bearing in respect to herself of the little fact he had announced, for she was after all capable of that, capable of guessing and yet of simultaneously hiding her guess. It wound him up a turn or two further, nonetheless, to impute to her now a weakness of vision by which he could himself feel the stronger. Whatever apprehension of his motive in shifting his abode might have brushed her with its wing, she at all events certainly didn't guess that he was giving their friend a hollow promise. That was what she had herself imposed on him. There had been in the prospect from the first a definite particular point at which hollowness, to call it by its least compromising name, would have to begin. Therefore, its hour had now charmingly sounded. Whatever in life he had recovered his old rooms for, he had not recovered them to receive Milly Teal, which made no more difference in his expression of happy readiness than if he had been, just what he was trying not to be, fully hardened and fully base. So rapid, in fact, was the rhythm of his inward drama that the quick vision of impossibility produced in him by his hostess's direct and unexpected appeal had the effect, slightly sinister, of positively scaring him. It gave him a measure of the intensity, the reality of his now mature motive. It prompted in him certainly no quarrel with these things, but it made them as vivid as if they were already flushed with success. It was before the flush of success that his heart beat almost to dread. The dread was but the dread of the happiness to be compassed, only that was in itself a symptom. That a visit from Milly should, in this projection of necessities, strike him as of the least incongruity, quite as a hateful idea, and above all as spoiling, should one put it grossly, his game. The adoption of such a view might, of course, have an identity with one of those numerous ways of being a fool that seemed so to abound for him. It would remain, nonetheless, the way to which he should be in advance most reconciled. His mature motive, as to which he allowed himself no grain of illusion, had thus in an hour taken imaginative possession of the place. That precisely was how he saw it seated there, already unpacked and settled, for Milly's innocence, for Milly's beauty, no matter how short a time, to be housed with.
There were things she would never recognise, never feel, never catch in the air, but this made no difference in the fact that her brushing against them would do nobody any good. The discrimination in the scribble would be him. So he felt all the parts of the case together, while Kate showed admirably for showing none of them. Of course, however, when hadn't it to be his last word, Kate was always sublime. That came up in all connections during the rest of these first days, came up in especial under pressure of the fact that each time our plighted pair snatched, in its passage, at the good fortune of half an hour together, they were doomed, a denture felt it, as all by his act, to spend a part of the rare occasion in wonder at their luck and in study of its clear character. This was the case after he might be supposed to have got in a manner used to it. It was the case after the girl, ready always, as we say, with the last word, had given him the benefit of her writing of every wrong appearance, a support familiar to him now in reference to other phases. It was still the case after he possibly might, with a little imagination, as she really insisted, have made out, by the visible working of the crisis, what idea on Mrs. Lowder's part had determined it. Such as the idea was, and that it suited Kate's own book she openly professed, he had only to see how things were turning out to feel it strikingly justified. Densher's reply to all this vividness was that of course Aunt Maud's intervention hadn't been occult, even for his vividness, from the moment she had written him, with characteristic concentration, that if he should see his way to come to Venice for a fortnight she should engage he would find it no blunder. It took Aunt Maud really to do such things in such ways, just as it took him, he was ready to confess, to do such others as he must now strike them all, didn't he, as committed to. Mrs. Lowder's admonition had been, of course, a direct reference to what she had said to him at Lancaster Gate before his departure, the night Millie had failed them through illness. Only it had at least matched that remarkable outbreak in respect to the quantity of good nature it attributed to him. The young man's discussions of his situation, which were confined to Kate, he had none without more herself, softened a little, it may be divined, by the sense that he couldn't put everything off, as he privately expressed it, on other people. His ears in solitude were apt to burn with the reflection that Mrs. Lowder had simply tested him, seen him as he was, and made out that what could be done with him. She had had but to whistle for him, and he had come. If she had taken for granted his good nature, she was as justified as Kate declared. His awkwardness of his conscience, both in respect to his general plasticity, the fruit of his feeling plasticity, within limits to be a mode of life like another, certainly better than some, and particularly in respect to such confusion as might reign about what he had really come for, his inward ache was not wholly dispelled by the style, charming as that was, of Kate's poetic versions. Even the high wonder and delight of Kate couldn't set him right with himself when there was something quite distinct from these things that kept him wrong. In default of being right with himself, he had meanwhile, for one thing, the interest of seeing, and quite for the first time in his life, whether on a given occasion that might be quite so necessary to happiness as was commonly assumed, and as he had up to this moment never doubted. He was engaged distinctly in an adventure, he who had never thought himself cut out for them, and it fairly helped him that he was able at moments to say to himself that he mustn't fall below it. At his hotel, alone by night, or in the course of the few late strolls he was finding time to take through dusty, labyrinthine alleys and empty campi, overhung with mouldering palaces, where he paused in disgust at his want of ease and where the sound of a rare footstop on the enclosed pavement was like that of a retarded dance in the banquet hall deserted. During these interludes he entertained cold views, even to the point at moments, on the principle that the shortest follies are the best, of thinking of immediate departure as not only possible but as indicated, 
He had, however, only to cross again the threshold of Palazzo Leporelli to see all the elements of the business composed, as painters called it, differently. It began to strike him then that departure wouldn't curtail, or would signally coarsen his folly, and that above all, as he hadn't really begun anything, had only committed, consented, but too generously indulged and condoned the beginnings of others, he had no call to treat himself with superstitious rigour. The single thing that was clear in complications was that, whatever happened, one was to behave as a gentleman, to which was added indeed the perhaps slightly less shining truth that complications might sometimes have their tedium beguiled by a study of the question of how a gentleman would behave. This question, I hasten to add, was not in the last resort Densch's gracious worry. Three women were looking to him at once, and though such a predicament could never be, from the point of view of facility, quite the ideal, it yet had, thank goodness, its immediate workable law. The law was not to be a brute, in return for amiabilities. He hadn't come all the way out from England to be a brute. He hadn't thought of what it might give him to have a fortnight, however handicapped, with Kate in Venice, to be a brute. He hadn't treated Mrs. Lowder as if in responding to her suggestion he had understood her. He hadn't done that either, to be a brute. And what he had prepared least of all for such an anticlimax was the prompt and inevitable achieved surrender. As a gentleman, oh, that indubitably, to the unexpected impression made by poor, pale, exquisite Millie as the mistress of a grand old palace, and the dispenser of an hospitality more irresistible, thanks to all the conditions, than any ever known to him. This spectacle had for him an eloquence, an authority, a felicity, he scarce knew by what strange name to call it, for which he said to himself that he had not consciously bargained. Her welcome, her frankness, sweetness, sadness, brightness, her disconcerting poetry, as he made shift at moments to call it, helped as it was by the beauty of her whole setting and by the perception at the same time, on the observer's part, that this element gained from her in a manner for effect and harmony as much as it gave. Her whole attitude had, to his imagination, meanings that hung about it, waiting upon her, hovering, dropping and quavering forth again, like vague faint snatches, near ghosts of sound, of old-fashioned melancholy music. It was positively well for him, he had his times of reflecting, that he couldn't put it off on Kate and Mrs. Lowder, as a gentleman so conspicuously wouldn't, that, well, that he had been rather taken in by not having known in advance. There had been now five days of it all without his risking even to Kate alone any hint of what he ought to have known, and of what in particular, therefore, had taken him in. The truth was doubtless that, really, when it came to any free handling and naming of things, they were living together, the five of them, in an air in which an ugly effect of blurting out might easily be produced. He came back with his friend on each occasion to the blessed miracle of renewed propinquity, which had a double virtue in that favouring air. He breathed on it as if he could scarcely believe it, yet the time had passed, in spite of his privilege, without his quite committing himself, for her ear, to any such comment on Millie's high style and state as would have corresponded with the amount of recognition it had produced in him. Behind everything for him was his renewed remembrance, which had fairly become a habit, that he had been the first to know her. This is what they had all insisted on in her absence that day at Mrs. Lowder's and this was in especial what had made him feel its influence on his immediately paying her a second visit. Its influence had been all there, been in the high-hung rumbling carriage with them, from the moment she took him to drive, covering them in together as if it had been a rug of softest silk. It had worked as a clear connection with something lodged in the past, something already their own. He had more than once recalled how he had said to himself, even at that moment, at some point in the drive, that he was not there, 
not just as he was in, in so doing it, through Kate and Kate's idea, but through Millie and Millie's own, and through himself and his own, unmistakably, as well as through the little facts, whatever they had amounted to, of his time in New York. End of Book 8, Chapter 1